Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 23, Looking Back on the First Bulgarian Empire, Part 1. Welcome back. Now, before I get into this episode, I wanted to address you, the listener, and ask, if possible, if you can give back a little bit. Now, I've been creating this podcast for about two and a half years now. I put in an enormous amount of time needed to keep creating it. Every episode takes several working days during which I'm not earning any other income to pay my rent or my student loans. So I've decided at this milestone, when I've finished covering the First Bulgarian Empire, to begin a Patreon campaign where you can support this show on a per-episode basis. If just a few of you can pledge even a dollar per episode, every time someone pledges, it makes it much easier for me to afford to set aside the days of work needed to keep this going. Now, just a quick point, I'm going to keep creating the podcast either way. It's something I believe in passionately, even if I never make any money. If I keep losing money on it, that's fine. This is something I really, really want to do. It would just be nice if it were a bit easier on my part. But... There's also some great perks for you guys. Uh, I'm planning on creating a cool mini-series on the history of Volga, Bulgaria, which can be accessed by pledging even, I think, $1 is the the minimum pledge for that. Um, Also, if you pledge a little bit more, anytime you come here, you can get a Sofia City tour or even a home-cooked gourmet meal on my part. I happen to love cooking, and I would love to put something together for you if you pledge a certain amount. So... Check out those uh, all those cool perks and things. Check out the page. You can find it through the Facebook page of the History Podcast or just search my name, Eric Halsey, on Patreon. All right. Now on to the episode. So, the First Bulgarian Empire is now officially gone. Byzantium rules the Balkans unchallenged. But before I begin to tell that story, the story of this period of Byzantine domination, I want to take some time and look back on the 337 years since Asperuch first established his new state south of the Danube. What's really changed since then? And how should we frame the empire in retrospect? So this is going to be a series of two episodes which will recap everything that's happened so far. Now considering it's been well over two years since I began the podcast, chances are most of you could use a refresher. I know I can. Alright, so... We'll begin at the origins of the state. How did Bulgaria come into being? Now, it began with that most human of tendencies, migration. Today, as I write this, Europe is embroiled in its own refugee crisis. China is facing the end of the largest movement of people in history, from its rural villages to its great cities. Now, to our modern eyes, these stories seem remarkable the product of extraordinary and uniquely modern circumstances. But great migrations have been happening as long as there have been humans, and the ones which begin the story of the Bulgarians are no different. Now, the first of these two migrations began with the huge movement of Slavs from their homeland somewhere in modern Belarus, Ukraine, or maybe Poland, and to a variety of parts of Europe. Now, from around the 6th century, a large group of these Slavs settled in the Balkans, establishing themselves well within the boundaries of the Byzantine Empire. Now, 
Around this time, or a little bit later, the Bulgars had a state of their own known as Old Great Bulgaria. Now, this was one in a long succession of states that the Bulgars established during their centuries-long migration from their kind of ambiguous Central Asian homeland all the way towards Europe. Old Great Bulgaria existed through modern Ukraine between the Dnieper and Don rivers, as well as most of the Caucasus Mountains. Now, this, this uh, state began, as with so many steppe tribe confederations, with a single leader, in this case Khan Kubrat, uniting several of the Bulgar tribes under his banners. Kubrat took the ancient city of Phanagoria, perched on an island in the Straits of Kersh, separating the Black Sea from the Sea of Azov as his capital. But this state would be short-lived. That great womb of nations, the seemingly endless sea of grasses which stretched from the territory of old great Bulgaria for thousands of kilometers to the east, kept birthing new tribes, which would sweep down from the steppe in search of a homeland of their own. The Bulgars were just one of these tribes, but more were coming. This time, it was the Khazars. Khan Kubrat may have urged his five sons to stay together and fight on, but he was now dead, and with overwhelming pressure from the east, his sons and their people resolved to take portions of the tribe and flee to the far corners of the world in search of a new start. The year was 668. And so they traveled. Groups went to Lake Van in Armenia, to the upper reaches of the Volga River, to the area around modern Venice, to southern Italy, to the Pannonian Plain, to the deep mountains of Macedonia, and finally, to the delta of the great Danube River. Some of these sons would establish their own Bulgar states, others would see their tribes vanish and be incorporated into other great states, but only one would establish an empire. That son was Asperuch. He, along with tens of thousands of followers, entered the territory of the mighty Byzantine Empire. Far from the first or last steppe tribe to do so, they were, however, the only tribe who would ever build a state to last the test of time in these lands. In the year 680, they fought the Battle of Ongal against a Byzantine army sent to squash the upstarts. Neither army at this time could have possibly imagined that this was just the first of 45 major named battles that they would fight over the next six and a half centuries. The Byzantines couldn't have imagined that their loss to the Bulgars on that marshy island would allow the establishment of a state which would help define the remainder of their history. So the Bulgars swept down into the Danubian plain, defeating the Byzantines again and forcing the Byzantines to accept their presence. In 681, the Byzantines reluctantly signed a treaty recognizing the newly formed Bulgar Khanate, called Bulgaria, and paying it an annual tribute. Now, the new state faced a challenge. To establish itself as something more than another historical footnote. To build a lasting state as so few steppe people had ever managed to do. And to do it all with a constant Byzantine menace waiting patiently for the moment to destroy them once and for all. That meant building more than an empire. It meant building a nation. 
an identity, something which could withstand war, conquest, oppression, and the indignities which would face these people. The Bulgars, on their own, simply weren't large enough to do this. Like their contemporaries, the Avars and the Khazars and others, they were a small elite which ruled over a large mass of foreigners. Now today, you look at the map of Europe and there's no country of the Avars, no Khazaria. Then that's for a reason. Both of these groups failed to forge a coherent nation and last through time. But for the moment, there were wars to fight, territory to secure. The larger project of turning the Khanate of the Bulgars into the Empire of Bulgaria would have to wait. Within a short period of time, Bulgaria became a player in Byzantine politics. Within just two decades of the foundation of the state, things were already changing. Asparuch was dead, and his son was helping the exiled Byzantine emperor Justinian II retake his throne in exchange for territory, gifts, and titles. Among those titles was Caesar, making the Bulgarian Khan the first foreign ruler to ever be given this Byzantine designation, as well as making him second only to the emperor himself in the hierarchy of Byzantine titles. But it wasn't all good feelings, as Justinian soon violated the peace agreement, leading to yet another catastrophic defeat for Byzantine arms at the First Battle of Anchialos. But just a few years later, the Byzantines found themselves in need of Bulgar assistance, as a massive Arab army crossed into Europe and laid siege to Constantinople. In two large engagements, the Bulgars crushed the Arab army at the walls of the city and put a halt to the advance of Islam into Europe for several centuries. Though it may not be as famous a victory as that of the Franks at the Battle of Tours, but this is just as vital an engagement into the history of Europe, and in fact I would say it's a far more important and consequential victory for the history of the continent. Soon after this, the Bulgars once again were trying to play the role of emperor-maker in Constantinople, though less successfully this time. But in any case, within a short period, the Bulgars had really managed to establish themselves as a powerful force on the Balkan Peninsula, integral to the ever-changing world of Byzantine politics. Following this early intense period, Bulgaria and Byzantium signed a peace treaty, allowing things to go quiet for several decades with a few brief intervals for some fighting and raiding. Now that peace lasted until 755, when, the, when it expired and war returned to the region. The Byzantines were feeling confident as a result of their significant recent victories against the Arabs. Emperor Constantine V invaded Bulgaria, defeated the Bulgars at the First Battle of Marseille, but the Bulgars were resistant. And as the Byzantines made war on them year after year, winning many small victories, they did not relent or give up. This continued until the Bulgarians managed to trap a Byzantine army in a mountain pass and annihilate it, a tactic which would serve them very well over the centuries. However, when the Khan decided to sue for peace instead of taking the fight to the enemy, his nobles politely disagreed, and he was murdered by them. The next Khan, Teletz, was also murdered following his disastrous defeat by the Byzantines at the Second Battle of Anchialos, 
This was a result of the desertion on the part of the Bulgar Slavic infantry. Again, highlighting that desperate need to merge the Bulgar nobility, the Bulgar people, and their cavalry with that great mass of Slavs which made up the majority of the population. But first, there were more battles to fight. The Khan who took over from the murdered Telets, a man named Sabin, immediately made himself very unpopular by secretly seeking peace with the Byzantines. When things got ugly, he he fled to the Byzantine court and stayed there. Now the pattern which is developing is essentially that the fiercely independent Bulgar nobility demanded war, plunder, and victory over the Byzantines. The idea of becoming slaves to the Byzantines was abhorrent to them. They were proud and completely unwilling to compromise. That stubborn pride, however, made it quite difficult to run a young state in a complicated neighborhood. Military might simply couldn't save Bulgaria forever. Clever diplomacy was going to be necessary for them to survive. But for that to happen, the Khans were going to have to exert their power over the nobles, not the other way around. The next several Khans also faced rebellions and were either killed or fled to the Byzantine Empire. During this period of chaos, the Byzantines even managed to burn the Bulgar capital of Pliska to the ground. Clearly, internal divisions were bringing the young state closer and closer to destruction. What it needed was a strong leader. But that would take time. Meanwhile, war continued, losses mounted, more Khans fled. It was only in the late 8th century, after decades of weak leadership and military defeats, that a Khan named Kardam came to the throne. Kardam took an aggressive policy, attacking the Byzantines before they could come to him. The result was a series of victories, which brought about the signing of a peace treaty and the return of Byzantine tribute. But this was nothing compared to what was to come. Now, Kardam had brought stability back to Bulgaria. He had stopped the bleeding caused by the weakness of his successors. But now, his successor, Krum, exploded onto the scene, doubling the size of the state in just 11 years. It began with his destroying the Avar Khanate, slowly weakening for decades, once and for all. He took enormous swathes of territory north of the Carpathians, as far north as Pest, half of modern Budapest. Within a year or two, Krum swerved around and attacked the Byzantines along the Struma Valley, taking the major city of Serdica, the city we now know as Sofia. The emperor, to put it lightly, was not amused and responded by moving north and sacking the Bulgar capital at Pliska, taking immense amounts of treasure and prisoners. However, on his way home, Krum had prepared an ambush in the mountains. When the trap closed, it was clear that the Byzantines had no way to escape the pass at Verbitsa. The entire army and the emperor himself perished there. It was one of the worst defeats the Byzantines had ever suffered, and the first time an emperor had been killed in battle since the Battle of Adrianople in 378 centuries earlier. That Krum had turned the fallen emperor's skull into a drinking cup only added to the shame. But that was only the beginning. Krum kept up the pressure, taking more and more Byzantine fortresses 
and pressing the emperor towards a favorable peace. But the Byzantines knew they couldn't simply accept peace in a situation like this, so they fought on. Two more emperors were forced from their thrones by Krum's victories and relentless attacks, until Leo the Armenian came to power. This new emperor offered peace. But literally at the negotiating table, as the two men walked towards each other, Krum was ambushed by Byzantine archers who tried to kill him unsuccessfully. Needless to say, Krum was furious and channeled his anger into action. He plundered and took prisoners as never before and spent the winter preparing to take the ultimate prize, Constantinople, the queen of cities. However, as he approached the final steps in his attack, he died suddenly and was succeeded by his son Omurtag after a brief period of chaos, during which time several men took the reins of power. But the period of Omurtag was going to be about much more than war. Krum had made significant progress in establishing a more stable and predictable state of getting the, the sort of role of Khan as a more solidified role. And this is something Bulgaria desperately needed. But now the country is exhausted. Krum had given it confidence and solid institutions, but it needed more. It was now just over 130 years since Bulgaria had been established, and it was finally on its way to becoming a more established and respected player on the European stage. So, Omurtag knew that Bulgaria needed to breathe. He signed a 30-year peace treaty and set about solidifying the progress his father had made, both in terms of territory and administrative reforms. While some fighting was necessary to put down rebellious Slavic tribes, again reinforcing the idea that the formation of a cohesive Bulgarian identity and population was so necessary, but in general this was a period of internal work. Omurtag gave the state a more formal administrative structure. He unified the army, eliminating the previous division between Bulgar cavalry and Slavic infantry. He rebuilt the capital, as well as many border fortresses. All of this contributed significantly to the forging of that identity I keep mentioning. Bulgaria was feeling less and less like a Khanate ruled by a warrior elite and more like a centrally governed European empire. However, that peaceful period came to an end when Omurtag's son Malamir came to the throne. With the expiration of the peace treaty, war of Byzantium resumed. Malamir was successful in his fights with the Byzantines, even managing to annex Philippopolis, modern Plovdiv. But internal conflicts began to cause friction within the elite of the Bulgarian state, namely Christianity. Several members of Malamir's family had converted, as well as many nobles. But embrace of or resistance to Christianity was beginning to emerge as a major point of conflict within the royal family and the larger elite. Some saw Christianity as the true faith, as well as a way for Bulgaria to truly join the ranks of major European powers. Others saw it as the fast track towards Byzantine cultural and ultimately military domination. Under the next Khan, Presian, most of the major policies were actually determined by a sort of prime minister, a man named Izbul, a significant change from the way things had been done up to that point. The main development during Presian's 16 years on the throne was the taking of significant territory in Macedonia. 
But tied in with that was the development that, the, that was the consolidation of the Serbian Slavic tribes in the Northwest. So while the gradual coming together of a new state in the neighborhood would have been worrying for Prasian in any case, the greater problem was that the Serbs decided to sway our loyalty to the Byzantines, making this development far more dangerous. Presian tried to head off this threat by invading Serbia in 839. But that three-year war only led to disaster as the Serbian troops used the hilly terrain to their advantage and defeated the Bulgars at every turn. Still, Presian managed not to lose any territory in this endeavor and still left the state larger than he found it when he died in 852. His son, Boris I, however, would prove far more consequential than his father. Now, Boris I is generally seen as one of the greatest leaders Bulgaria has ever seen. Yet his reign is really full of contradictions. It started off right, with him threatening the Byzantines into granting him a small amount of territory for nothing. This would be the actual only territorial gain of his entire reign. Soon after, Boris would become entangled in a war between Great Moravia and East Francia, two powerful European states at the time. The alliance between the Bulgarians and the Moravians was a complete disaster and this war went nowhere. Even worse, at the same time, the Croats, yet another Slavic group which had been recently united, also fought the Bulgarians. It was the first time the Bulgarian state had ever fought multiple neighbors at the same time, but it would not be the last. Almost immediately after the end of these conflicts, war resumed with the Byzantines. And with Boris still recovering from his losses in the West, Bulgaria lost vital territory on its border. Sometime around this period, the timeline's a bit ambiguous, there was also yet another war with the Serbs. Now, if those Serbs were not feeling powerful enough to exist within Byzantine rule, it was hoped by Boris that they would do well under Bulgarian tutelage. But this war also went very poorly. Now, somehow Boris managed to resolve it without losing any territory yet again, but we're beginning to see the early stages of a major problem for the First Bulgarian Empire. Too many warlike neighbors was leading to overstretched military resources, and in the, Byzantine, uh, in the Byzantine ability to always pull out an alliance or a deal from somewhere meant that Bulgaria was in near constant danger of a multi-front war. But besides all that warfare, Boris also made another critical decision. The decision that Christianity was going to help uni unify his subjects and bring Bulgaria into the world of European powers. He could see that as long as the Bulgarians were pagans, they would always be seen as outsiders. In addition, conversion to Christianity would continue to tear the royal family apart. The big question, of course, was which Christianity? Catholicism or Orthodoxy? Of course, this was several centuries before Protestantism ever came to being. Boris's decision would have massive implications in the future of the country, so it was essential that he decide well. At first, he looked towards Orthodoxy, which was, of course, more familiar to him and his people. But Boris wanted an independent Bulgarian church to allay the fears of his nobility that converting to Christianity would inevitably lead to Byzantine domination. Unfortunately, he found that independent church very hard to get. So, 
he looked towards the papacy and far-off Rome for better terms. While things seemed to go better there initially, squabbles over the status of church officials sent to Bulgaria soon led Boris to turn his gaze back towards the Orthodox faith. Seeing the chance to build his own church and make it uniquely Bulgarian, he went in this direction, converting the population within a few years and very soon beginning to replace Byzantine clergymen sent there with Bulgarians trained in his own state. With this change, besides all the advantages Bulgaria gained, which I've mentioned, Boris went from simply being Khan or Caesar to being God's monarch, his representative in the state. So in essence, the conversion to Christianity was a geopolitical move, one which solved many of the problems facing the first Bulgarian empire in its first two centuries or so of existence. It increased the power and legitimacy of the monarch. It increased Bulgaria's standing on the European stage. And it provided a cultural basis to craft a coherent national identity from the Bulgar and Slav populations. On this last cultural note, whereas Bulgaria had previously used Greek as its written language, the arrival of two monks from Great Moravia around this time, Cyril and Methodius, brought the beginnings of a unique Bulgarian culture and writing system, which would be established as a core part of the country's Christianization and formation into a modern state. With Cyril and Methodius, Bulgaria would finally establish centers of learning where monks and priests would be trained in Bulgarian Orthodoxy, the emerging Old Church Slavonic language, and in the newly created Slavic scripts, first Gogolitic and ultimately Cyrillic. It's this cultural advancement that will play an enormous part in allowing Bulgaria to survive centuries of conquest and remain a coherent idea centuries into the future. But back to Boris. He eventually abdicated his throne to become a monk and let his eldest son Vladimir take over. However, Vladimir shared the sentiment of many of the nobles that the conversion to Christianity had been a mistake. So he led a rebellion to return to paganism. The rebellion was defeated, and Boris had to blind his own son to ensure he would never challenge the religious status quo again. A council was then held in Preslav to decide what to do next. It decided that Boris's third son, Simeon, should rule. This Simeon had never expected to rule the country. In fact, he had been trained to be a church official in distant Constantinople for many years by this point. And yet, he would take to the role as if he were born to it. Okay, that wraps up the first part of this retrospective on the First Bulgarian Empire. But now I just want to summarize. So, what defined the first part of the empire's history leading up to its Christianization? First, the difficulty of geography. Now, this is an issue which will plague Bulgaria for its entire history. Besides the Danube and some mountain ranges, there are simply too many open areas where foreigners can come in and invade. Then, speaking of foreigners, this is one of the other great challenges facing the state in these early years and throughout its history. Early on, it was mainly the Byzantines, Serbs, Franks, and Avars which really posed a threat. But that cast of peoples is going to change a lot over the years. What's going to remain constant is the presence of powerful states always looking for opportunities to destroy Bulgaria if given a chance. The remaining challenges, however, were acutely addressed fairly well during this period. 
For example, the struggle to create a coherent national identity on which a more powerful state could be built was relatively successful, though far from completed, by Boris I and his predecessors. They set the groundwork for a flourishing of culture which would happen afterwards. Now it's because of them that we can eventually stop referring to Bulgars and begin talking about Bulgarians as a coherent people from around the late 9th century onwards. These changes also brought Bulgaria from being seen as outsiders, as barbarians who had taken Byzantine land, into Europeans, who in the eyes of their contemporaries belonged on that land. This shift was vital if Bulgaria was going to avoid fading into history as so many other steppe tribes ultimately did. Finally, the decades of fighting between the Khans and their Boyar nobles led to crippling instability for the Bulgarian state. So the eventual establishment of a powerful monarchy, buttressed by its position as a God-sanctioned head of a Christian state with meaningful Byzantine titles to boot, was essential. So clearly, huge progress had been made where possible up to this point. In just over two centuries, the Bulgarian state had changed into something which would have been nearly unrecognizable to its founders. It had become a powerful European and Christian empire. The next hundred years will see its further rise to a golden era before ultimately seeing a disastrous and slow death. Now, good news is I'm already underway doing working on the next recap episode. So you're going to hear more like this very soon, and then we'll be on to the Byzantine Interregnum. But in the meantime, if you guys have any questions you'd like to ask me about all the stuff we've covered so far, or really anything, you can feel free just to ask, write me on the email, bulgarianhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can comment through the website or write me on Facebook. That's probably easiest, but just get in touch and I'll answer them in the next episode. This episode was produced and written by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven, and the engineering and other production is by uh, Lance Nelson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, you can now listen to us directly on SoundCloud, so try that out. As always, you can still feel free to donate with the PayPal button on the website, but what's even more important here is please uh, become a Patreon supporter, an ongoing supporter. It's much easier to me uh, to have that kind of predictable source of income coming with each one of these episodes. As always, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out Bulgarian Now, the podcast by Lance Nelson, where you'll hear me as a co-host frequently. You can hear things like a cool audio tour of the city of Sofia, and just general discussions about what Bulgaria is like today. All right, so that's it for today. So, Uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>